Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice. Okay, I think it's one o'clock now. Um, welcome, everybody. We'll start our webinar, our last one of 2021. Um, I'm Louise Greenwood, Director of Education and Wessex LMCs. And um, it's lovely today to have our acting CEO, Gareth Bryant, joining us, um, one of our medical directors, Andy Purbrick, and Director of Primary Care, Lisa Harding. Um, so thank you, everybody, for um, joining us today. As ever, we are recording this and it will be um, a podcast you can listen to afterwards um, and we get over 300 of you doing that and we know that's a useful thing for you to fit in when you can. Um, please do ask questions. We want this to be as interactive and helpful and useful as possible. Please use the Q&A box and not the chat bar. So please use the Q&A box. It's just easier for everybody to see then what you're asking um, and then we can also answer questions then um, if, if we need to or if we can do that um, offline. So that's also a helpful thing for us to do. So um, I'm going to hand straight over to Andy, um, who's going to give us a little bit of a, um, an overview of the current situation. So, Andy, I will hang it over to you. Thank you. Yeah. Happy Christmas, everyone. Uh, so current situation, don't panic. It's all under control, uh, especially according to Boris. So nothing's going to change until after Christmas. Um, I think we all wait with bated breath, really, because if we don't change anything in terms of uh, more control measures. I think all the predictions are that we're going to have a peak sort of in mid-January of COVID um, nationally. Uh, certainly on the ground, we're seeing more cases. I did a hot clinic uh, on Friday, um, saw a lot of children, um, a lot of people with COVID that have had two vaccines. Actually, interestingly, not many people that have had three the three vaccines or the booster with COVID. So that's promising. Um if we look at sort of numbers locally, uh, I think regionally we're in about the 500s per 100,000. If you look at London, they're about 2,000 per 100,000. And certainly London, um, the Midlands and the Northeast are hotspots at the moment. Um, and the only real mitigation that public health can see is the booster program to stop us getting that peak in January. So uh, I think we're all experiencing locally with our acute trust that they're already struggling with the business as usual work, uh, uh, despite the fact that the hospital numbers haven't rocketed yet. So there is a real concern um, locally that uh, if we do have a peak in January, it have a significant impact. And certainly um, the ambulance services are already struggling, and I'm sure you, you're you're clinical teams have been finding it difficult uh, admitting patients to, to hospital. If we look at the vaccine numbers, um, as of the 20th of December in the over 12s, um, so everyone over 12, 89% uh, of people have had their first dose, 81% uh, second dose and 52% have had a booster. So that's pretty good numbers. If you compare the Netherlands where they went into a recent um, hard lockdown, they'd only had about 6% of their population that had a booster. We look at case rates, you know, they're going up. Um, as of the 21st of December, there were 90 and a half thousand new people with confirmed COVID uh, and um, 615,000 in the last seven days. So that's an increase of about 238,000 compared to the previous seven days. So a significant increase there. And we look at healthcare impact, uh, as you'd expect, there's a bit of a lag. Um, there are 147 new people with uh, COVID admitted to hospital on the 17th of, no, uh, 17th of December, and that's the most up-to-date um, date that we've got figures for, uh, 6,094 people in the last seven days. Um, so 
that's an increase of 131 compared to previous seven days. And I think what the hospitals are seeing are a mixture of people admitted. Uh, I certainly in Dorset, when we were on a call a couple of weeks ago, about 30% of people being admitted to hospital weren't vaccinated, but about 75% of people on ITU um, uh, were not vaccinated. So the vaccine's definitely protective against a uh, significant disease, but it's the booster that it seems to be most protective. Uh, in terms of deaths, um, 172 new deaths within 28 days of a positive test for COVID on the 21st of December uh, and 808 people in the last seven days. So there's only a marginal increase of seven compared to the previous seven days. So again, highlighting the fact that hopefully the the vaccine is protective in terms of deaths. But I think what we're all really concerned about is that if we get high numbers of COVID cases, it's the impact on staffing for health and social care that could have the biggest impact on patient health, not, not just from COVID, obviously, but our ability to deliver business as usual for all those other essential and urgent services, especially around cancer um, uh, and acute A&E um, so that's pretty much all I've got to update with in terms of COVID, uh, Louise. Okay, thanks, Andy. Um, we've already had a question in. So any official information yet about changes to isolation that we, again, learned about through the media? So can you talk yeah. about isolation? Lisa, yeah. you want to add a little bit in here. Uh, Gareth and Andy might want to add more, but I was just going to look out. There, there are two. Uh, the, the, there is updated on guidance on the gov.uk website. Um, it does still refer to to specific guidance for healthcare workers, which has been updated again today. So I will put both links to those elements of guidance in the, in the chat box. Um, but I don't know if Gareth or Andy want to comment a bit further on that. Uh, we have quite quite a few queries on that issue. Yeah, I think the long and short of it is it really doesn't change much. So um, the guidance says that from day six, you can start do la doing lateral flow tests. And if you are lateral flow test negative after a, this is if you've been diagnosed with COVID, so day six, you can start doing lateral flow tests. If your lateral flow test negative from day seven, you can come out of isolation. But it also then has a whole load of caveats suggesting that you don't mix with people, that you um, take care, bloody, bloody, blah, blah. So, really from a practical health and social care point of view, um, it's pretty restrictive on what you could do and you would have to do an independent risk assessment as an employer. Um, but as uh, Lisa says, there is separate guidance around health and social care workers and that kind of just is really just saying that you have to do independent risk assessments for these individuals coming out of isolation early. And there's been guidance, Andy, about um, workload prioritisation is that helpful? And is there anything you think we can sort of highlight to the practices? Well, I mean, it's it's just been published. I haven't actually read it. You know, I'm just a frontline GP. So, you know, these things get published and, and they sit on the shelf and the rest of us carry on working. But I think it's not rocket science and it's not anything that we don't know already. It's about, as a practice, doing what you feel is pragmatic and practical, mindful that we do need to keep delivering as much business as usual as possible because of the backlog we're creating in the future. And it's really difficult to deprioritize workload when pa patients have already been waiting so long for so many of our services. So it's about perhaps the more administrative type tasks. Um, uh, and when you're looking at things like minor surgery, I know we've been told we can deprioritize minor surgery, but you know, I do the skin cancer in the practice. So 
yeah, perhaps this, this sort of um, less serious minor surgery can be put put on the back burner a little bit. But from a practical point of view, it just adds the backlog later down the line. So I don't think it's, it's anything revolutionary that we're going to be um, surprised about in that guidance. Uh, and I think most of us are making pragmatic decisions to carry on with as much business as usual as we can. And we had a query in this morning that Lisa and I were just discussing before the webinar. Um, one of the suggestions is you might want to pause responding to complaints. Um, Lisa, I don't know whether you want to talk that through. We, we just we had a little few concerns about that, didn't we? Yes, and I think that ultimately it is, of course, a practice decision depending on their own circumstances. I guess um, our concern is, given the sort of mood of patients at the moment, that we have concerns that quite often it will make the complaint um, more difficult and perhaps more scratchy to revolve, resolve in the longer term. So there may be some benefits if you can appreciate people stretched um, very, very thinly at the moment. It, it may be worth trying to resolve it sooner rather than later. Um, thanks, Lisa. And something that we've talked about and with some, with some various um, practice managers of practice is that whether or not in the future, when you have got time to think it through, really, um, whether it's worth sharing somebody between practices to manage a lot of complaints because I think it takes up so much time um, and is very stressful for all concerned um, but that just might be something that um, that you might want to think about going going further ahead. Um, just something else that's come in about um, all staff being vaccinated and what are we doing about that? Is it all staff? Who is going to be vaccinated? How? What's the process? What's the timing? I don't know Gareth whether you want to come in on this as with the sort of occupational health background. Sure I mean the, a couple of points, really. The first thing is that um, the preliminary legislation has been put to Parliament, but it isn't law yet. So it will it will uh, become law uh, if it goes through Parliament on the 1st of April. Um, the, the date, I think it's a, a date in February. I'm trying to look it up now quickly to make sure I don't get it wrong. Um, can anyone remember the date in February where you, where anybody who isn't vaccinated would have to have their first dose to be compliant by the 1st of April? Third. Third. The third, thank you. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing I would say is that, is that be, be mindful of the difference between vaccine hesitancy and vaccine refusal. There are still quite a lot of people who are very nervous about having a vaccine for lots of different reasons. And... There is a role about explanation and um, and supporting people who are uh, hesitant about having the vaccine. So I think that's the first first um, tack I would take is to try to persuade people as gen gently and possible and not coerce them into it, but try and give them information. We're going to engage now with our systems in the new year to to try to get this as a, as a system-wide approach. And we may, that may take conversations that take place in the employer. It may take place with their own, um, uh, prime, with their own GPs or, or it might be with specialists that the CCG can bring in to try to kind of to have conversations. But we will have a population that, that will refuse. So then what? So our guidance around flu has always been that actually in a, in a general practice setting, everybody is at risk of getting flu. So therefore everybody should have a flu jab. And it's difficult to say that COVID wouldn't be the same, but the guidance and the legislation is likely to say face-to-face -face contact, which is 
okay, but it puts people in a difficult position about deciding what is face-to-face contact and what members of staff have face-to-face contact with patients, particularly admin staff. So as employers, that's something that every practice will have to think about. And as we were discussing this morning, some of that will depend on the on the design of your building, the flows of patients through the building compared to the flows of staff, et cetera. So there won't be a hard and fast rule, I don't think. I think we're going to be left in this slightly difficult place that the, that the law will say face-to-face, but then how do you define face-to-face? I looked on a couple of union websites this morning and uh, organisations such as Unison have on their website that if somebody does refuse a vaccine and this does become law, then potentially if a person isn't vaccinated and the employer cannot make them safe, then in fact, we may be in a situation where staff members may need to be dismissed. We're not there yet, and I'm sure lots and lots of guidance will come out um, prior to that. Um, But we just need to start thinking this through quite carefully. Um, We the. Obviously, what, what one possible outcome will be that, that there will be an industrial tribunal somewhere if somebody contests a dismissal based on this grounds, but that's not likely to happen for some time. So we'll be watching the legislation. We will get um, work with our CCGs around issuing the guidance and the guidelines as, it, as the situation becomes clearer. You don't need to do anything about the employment aspects yet, but I would urge you, if you do have people in your team who have not been vaccinated for COVID, that you start to have a conversation with them and ask and see whether you can influence that decision. Um, because I think it is really important that we try to get absolutely the vast, vast majority of our staff vaccinated, um, really regardless of where they work within the surgery, because they are in an environment that is likely to be putting them at more risk. So that's probably all I can say for now, Louise, but we're, it's something where I'm sure we'll, there'll be lots of discussion in the new year about. Mm. So we discussed this morning whether or not, and I suggested perhaps you know, we run a webinar with some experts which might help, um, and perhaps some of your um, perhaps um, refusers or people who are hesitant to attack vaccine might want to engage with that. But the feedback was actually it's a one-on-one conversation that people need. So that probably isn't any good. Um, and it is the one-on-one call. But as, as Gareth said, this is a movable, something's movable, moving quickly. Um, I think everything we've seen is you need HR guidance every step of the way, don't you, Gareth? I think you just yeah. need to make sure you're covered by some sort of policy. And it's the process often that catches people out, isn't it? Yes, I think that's right. And, you know, this is all will all be governed by, by legislation. So we must make sure that we're compliant with the legislation of this and also our obligations under the Health and Safety at Work Act. So it, it's very important that we do um, think very carefully about how we implement this. There is a question around, um, uh, do we need evidence for the vaccination record for all staff? Well, I would su- suggest when it becomes law, you will. Um, and you'll certainly need that for, for CQC. So I think, um, you know, in, in much the same way that as doctors, if we, we have to submit evidence of hepatitis B status, I think that will be part of the legislation. And Jan has suggested that, um, she said, we actually don't know who has or has not had a vaccine officially. So they've put in their staff newsletter and said to people, do come forward um, and we'll start the discussion. Um, yeah. So that's the sort of thing you're talking about, isn't it? 
it is and it's and it's information that we've collected in the lmc with our internal staff around around um trying to keep everybody safe within our within the office um so you know i don't think it's an unreasonable ask but be aware there are strong views about it yeah um, and i'm sure we will come back to this i think this is just sort of the start isn't it of this sort of thing yeah. um thank you i think that's really helpful um louise i've just yeah, put on, in in the chat, I've put uh, uh, NH Singland Planning and Preparation Guidance, but it, it just gives you a little bit of an overview of what may be expected. It's kind of for all healthcare organisations, but the key thing is not to get ahead of yourself until this comes into legislation in April, because it's not actually law yet. I mean, the biggest thing is trying to encourage those those staff that haven't had the vaccine that actually um, 3rd of February is the deadline for first dose if they want to be um, problem free in terms of working from from April if it's passed in law but from an HR and employment point of view you can't make any decisions about staff capability until it's actually in law in in um, in April. <clears throat> so that's really helpful to know so the main message today is start having the conversations isn't it and just an awareness um, and if you start that process it's kind of a drip drip rather than a suddenly everything in and then maybe that'll make things a little bit easier but it's um quite a tricky situation with employing staff well always employing staff is a tricky situation isn't it but that particularly at the moment i think there's some extra sensitivities around it which is not making life easy at all um moving on to a se second subject now um andy i think you as our firearms expert i think you were just going to give us some um up-to-date guys we're having a lot of quite a few queries on firearms at the moment aren't we yeah, I wouldn't say I'm an expert, Louise, but I'm. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> but as far as I'm concerned, you're because I know nothing about it. As far as I'm concerned, you're a marvelous expert. When it comes to guns, if you see me shoot a shotgun, you'll realise I'm no expert at all. But in terms <laughs> of the legislation, <laughs> in terms of the legislation, I got given the poison chalice. Um, it's always a contentious issue, firearms, isn't it? And um, we happen to be in an area of the uh, area of the country where probably we've got more. Um, firearms license holders and a lot of other areas of the country because of our rurality but there was new statutory guidance that came out to chief officers of police on the 1st of november uh, and following that publication applicants for either a new firearms certificate or renewals have to at their own expense obtain a medical report from um, uh, their gp or an approved doctor in order for the application process to proceed so the onus is very much on the applicant to do this they will download a pro forma or be sent a pro forma by the police as part of their application process and they'll submit this to their gp and actually this is on the background of a lot of work from the bma um we've in, we've inputted into into that as well um to try and standardize the national um, guidance and process to ensure there's a more consistent process for uh, both the police medical professionals and, and applicants in getting a firearms license and the fundamental outcome of this new guidance is that it ensures that no one's granted a firearms certificate unless their regular GP or a suitably qualified alternative doctor with access to the full medical GP record has confirmed to the police that they don't have any relevant medical conditions. So we're in this ridiculous situation in the past where a lot of forces would assume that if they'd not heard from the GP or had a medical declaration form returned within 21 days, that there was no concerning medical condition and a firearms license would be granted. And that appeared to most of us to be a, a nonsensical loophole. So now it's very clear if there is no medical report issued 
uh, and the police do not receive a medical report, then uh, they will not be issuing a license. So you'll be seeing far more probably um, people coming forward to you with a request for the for the medical information to be completed. Um, we, we've always stated as an LMC that we believe we've got a professional moral duty to protect the public by facilitating the police with the firearms licensing pro uh, process. Existing health issues have um, been implicated in several fatal shootings and the Plymouth shootings, I think, have crystallised this view. Um, I think the BMA have just updated their guidance on their website and it's really useful to, to have a look at that. You're perfectly entitled to follow that guidance. Uh, and there is still the um, ability for practices or individuals to refuse to engage with the fire and firearms licensing process on the grounds of conscientious objection. Um, if you do that, then it's really important to inform the applicant that, that you are conscientiously objecting. The legal opinion is that if a GP refuses to engage on these grounds, they should also have due regard to GMC guidance around conscientious objection, although that guidance is primarily primarily written for the purposes of referral procedures, treatments uh, and interventions rather than completions of medical reports. So that's a little bit woolly. You need to make reasonable steps to notify your patients if you are conscientious objectors, say a statement on your website and notices in the practice. Um, and um, the, the ask of practices to flag the fact that someone is a, a firearms license holder in the notes is, is still there. Uh, and there is agreement between the Home Office, the BMA, that um, GPs that do place a firearms flag on the medical record uh, don't have any legal liability to monitor the suitability for that certificate holder. That still rests with the police. Um, so really, the, the new guidance addresses concerns that we've been raising for a while. It's now clear that the police can't issue a license without a completed medical form. Um, it cl also clearly states that a suitable qualified GMC registered private clinician can complete the form for the patient, providing they've got access to the full medical record. So you may be asked to send a, full, a copy of the full medical record to one of these private providers and the guidance says that that medical record has to go directly to the private provider and not to the uh, patient to provide to the um, private provider. Um, uh, and it also, the guidance also reaffirms that you can charge prior to completing the report. It's up to you to decide a reasonable charge. Uh, and it's still very clear that the GP isn't giving an opinion as to whether a license should be issued. That responsibility remains entirely with the police. So we've updated our guidance on our website around that, and it links into the BMA guidance. What you will see if you are Hampshire practices, we had agreed a pro forma with the Hampshire constabulary. Unfortunately, they're now not allowed to use that pro forma anymore. They have to use the nationally mandated pro forma um, so you'll see them using that, but we are trying to get them to send out some guidance with their um, with their letters to applicants so that that can be passed on to GPs. But the long short of it is if you've got any queries, log on to our website or, or the BMA website and it summarises everything I've said. Lovely. Thank you, Andy. That's really helpful. Um, a couple of questions that have come in. There's been quite a long one from Sue in the chat that I'm 
a little bit about the COVID pass, medical exemptions, quarantine, and GPs finding this difficult to get their head round. I don't know whether Gareth or Lisa, you've had a chance to look at that or can comment. I suspect it's just one of these. There's lots of lots of advice, and it seems to be contradicting itself. Is is the feeling I'm getting? I don't know whether well, Lisa. Perhaps I'll do a call this afternoon, and perhaps we'll discuss that one off offline. Shall we? Okay, that's a specific one. That's helpful, Lisa. And Jenny has put just something that's from the Futures platform that she's found really helpful um, is a vaccine data resolution service. There's obviously um, just looking at COVID vaccine discrepancies with pinnacle clinical system patients, and she's just said it looks really useful on the Futures website. In fact, a number of people say how good the Future NHS site is, and it's worth. It's a bit of a faff to register with it, but once you've done it, it turns out actually really useful. So there might be that might be something that is worth just um, taking the time to register if you haven't already. Um, thanks, Andy. That's great. Okay, we're just going to rattle through a few, and they're just updates and reminders, really. Um, there isn't anything else major we wanted to sort of draw to your attention, but we just think it's worth reminding you of these various different things um, because they're, we're still getting queries on them, and we just know there is just an overwhelming tsunami of information we can't get ahead about them. So, um, Lisa, did you want to just start on your little list? So, I think we're starting with friends and family tests, aren't we? Yes, thanks, Louise. So, so all of these items will have been or will be covered in our newsletter. So there will be more information if people want want it. But we just thought, given it's so busy at the moment, it would be good just to sort of canter through some of the main items as a reminder. So I'll, I'll run through the list. So as you say, the first one was the friends and families test. Um, just to confirm that has now been paused until the 31st of March 2022. Um, these are some of the concessions, and again, we recognise that they're probably not that significant, but it's possibly worth knowing anyway. So just moving on then to fit notes, um, from the 17th of December, self-certification for sickness was extended from 7 to 28 days for people accessing statutory sick pay. So there's no, there'll be no requirement for a fit nurse to, to access either uh, other benefits. This time limited change will end on the 26th of January next year. Um, and there is further guidance, which we will put in our newsletter. GPs may continue, however, to receive some requests for access to occupational sick, sick pay. So we don't know how useful that concession is, but it might just be worth being aware of. Um, most of you may well be aware now of the extension to the new partnership payment scheme that's been extended into the 22-23 financial year um, with the requirement to apply within six months of commencing a partnership role paused. Um, the removal of the six-month deadline includes all submitted applications that met, met all the other criteria. So maybe worth knowing. Um, again, so, Sorry, on. Lisa, that's... Yeah, so that's really important for practices where you've had partners of or that have been rejected in the past actually go back because they are now eligible again. So we know that there are lots of practices out there that miss a deadline because they were mistakenly including their period of mutual assessment uh, as um, part of the six month process, and then were being told they'd missed the six month deadline. So if you've had a application rejected, definitely go back because the likelihood is. You've got a good chance of being accepted now. Sorry, Lisa. No, it's okay. Do feel free, please, to chip in. So, um, moving on to CQC inspections, those have been postponed until the new year or into January, they're saying, to support the acceleration of the booster programme. This will include inspections related to that winter access fund statement. So, unless there's a very significant concern, um, CQC inspections have been uh, suspended. 
Moving on to the prescription charge medical exemptions, um, these will also be temporarily suspended. Um, and that relates to the recertification requirement for existing prescription charge medical exemptions, but they will retain the requirement for newly diagnosed patients. Um, NHSBA will cont contact patients with existing medical exemptions that are due to expire between 16th of December and 26th of January and supply a new certificate extending their exemption for a further six months. Um, some people requiring renewals may have already received a reminder, so have may already have been in touch with the surgery. Um, next item was DVLA checks. Um, so they've suspended requests for medical information for the provision of driver's licenses until the 12th of January. This excludes essential workers such as bus and lorry drivers. Um, and then the last uh, suspension, if you like, or relaxation is, is the COVID vaccine exemptions and the time frame for, for practices processing those will be dropped so they can be done to the practice's own timeline. Um, so that was a quick rattle through those and we will put those in the newsletter. And the only other two items I, I just wanted to cover very briefly um, was on the pensions side of things. So we've had some information through from PCSE around the pensions compensation window for 1920. Um, the third GP application window has opened and closes again on the 11th of February. This will be the final application of the window for GPs to submit their pensions, annual allowance compensation scheme, application forms to PCSE for processing. So that was that one. And the last one was an update for the GPs on their end of year pension certificates. The deadline for that, for submitting the end of year's pension certificates is the 28th of February, 22. So it was just a reminder to let your GPs know that. And as I say, that will be in the newsletter. There will be a bit more information if people want to check those, all of those, those timeframes. Thank you, Lisa. That's a great battle through and a great reminder. Really helpful. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to update on a couple of um, educational and resources things that we've got. So there's Laura Edwards, one of our medical directors, done a great podcast with John Perry, who you was well known to a lot of you, done a lot of training with us on how we cope with ongoing stress, looking at dealing with the current situation. He talks about all walks, so walking with aura, but things around you, the concept of good enough. Um, some of us are perfectionists and actually in this current situation that's particularly difficult but good enough is good enough um, and we can choose to let politicians make us angry or not so it goes through some various different things that I think it's, it's just worth a listen um, for, it's, it's appropriate for absolutely everybody and so do, do listen to that if you get a few minutes and um, that's one of our podcasts we put out um, and also I'm just working as much as I possibly can with your training hubs and your STPs to get some funding for your for education going forward into 2022. So we've got some funding for the introduction to practice management course. So those of you who are new practice managers, um, aspiring practice managers, you've got deputies you think might be useful, and that's a great course. All our courses are staying online for 2022, um, for clearly for obvious reasons. We've also got the five steps course for team leaders and reception teams, um, which I'd encourage you to sign up to. And we've got some more team leader and deputy um, training, um, deputy practice manager training coming up um, in the spring. Um, and just finally, just, just to let you know, they're looking after you too. It's still there. So that's fully funded coaching for individuals. They're also looking after your team. It's also there for if your team is struggling for any particular reason doesn't need to be anything in particular it could be just general morale um do contact them and there's also and they've got a sort of a third um branch to this now looking after your career it's fully funded it's for everybody in primary care um 
So you don't have to be the answer and the energy and the have all the time and all the compassion to give your whole staff and everybody. You can, there are other people out there who can help. So I would just recommend that you might think about looking at the looking after you two information. We can put that on our website and I can happily send anybody the information if they were interested. Um, and our Space to Thrive groups are still doing really well. We've got one of our quite new practice managers just joined us that's absolutely brilliant. They're a place to laugh and share and grow and ch share and chat and it's a safe place so you're just amongst colleagues so i would say if you haven't joined one of those do and um, we can start new ones that perhaps manager supporters facilitate them and the practice manager supporters saying well it doesn't feel like i'm doing very much but we just had a great time when i was able to put them in this direction and talk about this and so they're facilitated conversations that are just helpful for you so if that would be something that you might want to do in the new year do let me know and i would just say that they are they can only be a positive thing. And you might think you haven't got time to do it, but maybe you haven't got time not to do it. It's one of those things to create time for yourselves and to look after yourselves. So I think unless you've got any other questions coming in or whether Lisa, Andy or Gareth wanted to add anything else, I would just say happy Christmas. Um, try and have a lovely break over the um, restive period. I know that's going to be tricky, um, but we look forward to seeing you again and doing it all again in the new year. So take care and happy Christmas. Bye, everybody. Happy Christmas. Thank you. Yeah, happy Christmas. Bye. Wessex LMC's supporting you and your practice.